0: Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a fascinating and inspiring show for you this evening. Retired Major Heather Penny will be joining us this evening, and her story is is riveting and inspiring all in one. Before we get started, just a couple quick things. First of all, we are in just about halfway through the last month of IA renewals and education through Social Flight's FAA learning system. So if you are an AMP mechanic with an inspection authorization, you have just about three weeks left, a little less than that, in order to get your required eight hours of education. You can get that completely free through socialflight.com. Just click on socialflight and then the FAA Learning Center. And we have all those courses available. And it actually prints out certificates and notifies the FAA of your education requirements. So very, very important stuff there. In addition to that, for pilots, mechanics, technicians. All of those other courses are available on the same learning system in Social Flight. You can get WINGS credit for just sitting at home watching some fascinating educational content, as well as participate in the Aviation Maintenance Technician Program. That awards program is available through the FAA, and you can participate through socialflight.com. Finally, Social Flight's Fly to Win Challenge. We just completed another Fly to Win Challenge period, and we had a winner of a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset that is Alex Hyatt of Locust Grove, Georgia. Uh, Won that along, uh, he flies along with his son, Andrew, and we're very excited that they were able to get that prize. And now we're in a new prize period, so all you need to do is go to socialflight.com, get the app, get out there and fly, check in, and you can participate in the Fly to Win Challenge. So, so many cool things and uh, it's all available for free to support general aviation through social flight. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by Continental Aerospace Technologies. Continental has been such a strong supporter of social flight for so many years that we are sincerely grateful. And really in an unbiased fashion, I've been flying the Bonanza with a Continental engine and having them do the cylinder work on it, have new cylinders from Continental, and it's just been flawless. So I really do appreciate their products and their technical support is just stellar. Uh, there has been a recent service bulletin out there that people can uh, notify if you have a new engine or new crankshaft, and there's an article uh, that I wrote for AOPA that will talk a little bit more about that, and Mike Bush was on last week. So, with that, I would like to talk to you about tonight's uh, guest because I am so excited and thrilled to have her here. Major Heather Lucky Penny has been flying since 1993. On September 11th, 2001, she was serving as a lieutenant with the 121st Fighter Squadron of the District of Columbia Air National Guard on that faithful day she accepted a one-way mission in an unarmed f-16 to intercept and down united airlines flight 93 believed to be headed to the u.s capitol we're going to hear that story tonight in addition major penny subsequently served two combat tours of duty in in the iraq war and is currently a senior resident fellow at the mitchell institute of aerospace studies researching and advising on defense policy reach research and analysis While her career has focused on patriotism and defense of our nation, Heather also has a passion for general aviation. She's raced jets at Reno and remains an active GA pilot. Please welcome, as I bring her on the line now, please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Heather Penny. How are you this evening, Heather?
1: Hi, Jeff. It's great to see you. Hello, everyone.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Your story from beginning to end uh, just has me at the edge of our seat. So I, I just want to dive in and start with, how did you get exposed to flying in the beginning? What is it that drove you to to find your way first into the seat of an F-16?
1: <laughs> well, I think like everyone of us who's in aviation, there's a calling. There's just an urge. You know, it's it's in our blood. I do like to say, come by it uh, legit. Uh, I'm a third generation pilot. My grandfather was uh, a pilot, and he. Was an instructor and he uh, managed an airfield. My dad uh, was a pilot, is a pilot, uh, fighter pilot in Vietnam. He was a sandy. He flew A-7s out of Karat, participated in linebacker two, and then so I grew up around aviation. Uh, my dad was a uh, you know airline pilot. Then he was a test pilot with a Lear Fan at Reno Stead. He became involved with the races with the Rare Bear. Uh, he was a high roller flying RF-4s out of there. So. I was just exposed to a tremendous community and variety of aviation uh, and I couldn't get enough of it. So I, I, as a young girl, I always wanted to be a fighter pilot. Um, my mom didn't have the heart to tell me that girls couldn't be fighter pilots. And so when I showed up to Purdue University, I thought I was going to sign into ROTC and, and head on that aviation pathway and they said, hmm, yeah, girls can't be fighter pilots. So. At that point, my life took a a left-hand turn, and um, I was an English major, and I went into graduate school, and I was in grad school when I heard that Congress opened up combat aviation to women. And so that is when I applied to all the guard units around the nation, because I didn't care where I went. I just wanted to go fly something with a pointy nose, wanted to fly past jet, and the D.C. Guard hired me, and so that's where I've been ever since.
0: Wow. So... So, so, first of all, at the at the time, was it only combat that was that was out, or was had it had they yet allowed women into um, the uh, the armed forces as pilots at all?
1: So, women could fly in the armed forces; they could fly heavies, and the Navy did allow women um, to fly fighters as instructor pilots, but they weren't combat rounds. Right. The Air Force, because because of the way that we do the way we manage careers. We couldn't segregate women to just be instructor pilots because that combat knowledge is really crucial to how we instruct and how we pass that knowledge down, and frankly, how we also manage and promote too. Mm. So the Air Force did not have any women in fighters at all. The closest you could get would be uh, an instructor pilot in like T thirty sevens or T thirty eights. But but women in general, they they did not, for you know, for for the Air Force. And frankly, across all the armed services, none of them were combat rounds.
0: Wow. So tell me what it was like when you actually got got into the Air National Guard. And what was that? I mean, you came from an aviation background, obviously, so you already knew about a lot of things about flying. What was involved in making the transition then into the National Guard and then uh, working your way up through the different aircraft?
1: Well, so I wouldn't really call myself a super experienced aviator. I got my private pilot's license in a Cessna 152, like many of us, Um, and then as a starving graduate student, you know, saving up my pennies for an hour here and an hour there, Um, because, uh, you know, my dad was, I mean, they lived in Denver. I was going to school in Indiana. There wasn't the opportunity to be able to go bum a a flight in my dad's airplanes, Um, and so, I really didn't have that much experience, and when I joined the Air National Guard, when they when they hired me, I went through their commissioning process, and then I went through pilot training just like everyone else. And I think that that was really important because the way that the Air Force trains our pilots, really, it doesn't. It's designed to go from zero to hero, uh, and it's also designed to teach you to fly in a manner that the Air Force expects. And that's really important to be checklist oriented. It's about discipline. Um, it's teaching you a mindset. There's a focus on airmanship and judgment and so forth and that's really crucial to the follow-on tactical skills that will impart whether or not you're flying airlift whether or not you're flying um an rpa whether or not you're flying a fighter so all of the different platforms that that we operate and we take to war uh, it's really crucial to have a very similar basic foundation of airmanship the air force is now exploring a different means to be able to achieve that so um, using uh, advanced technologies, uh, being able to adapt the syllabus, uh, proficiency advancing students. But it's still, it's still ultimately focused on the same objective of delivering a qualified airman at the end of their training that has the, the solid foundation of not just aviation skills, but the airmanship, that then we can build that tactical operational skill set on top of. So after wow. graduating from pilot training, I went to NJEPT, which is the Euro-NATO joint jet pilot training in Wichita Falls, Texas at Shepard Air Force Base. Uh, we have there a lot of our NATO partners and allies send their studs who will be fighter pilots or combat pilots there too. So it's a very, it's, a, it's different than the other school houses that the Air Force has. So I was really fortunate to go there. It's where I bought my first airplane, my, my Taylor Craft. Um, and then, following graduation, I attended uh, uh, my B course, my basic school for F-16, out of Kelly Air National Guard Base, which is embedded on top of in in Langley. And after I did that, then uh, I went back to my operational unit and went through my mission qualification training, just like everyone else.
0: Wow, uh, I have a couple pictures. We don't do a lot of pictures here, but I've got a couple here that are <laughs> that I like. This this, this is yeah, like a this, mighty tweet. This is a good one with the tweet.
1: I lo- oh my goodness, I love the tweet. It was such a fun little airplane, horribly underpowered, but it was so flitty and nimble. It was just such a joy to fly.
0: And you still have your hearing, right after that?
1: <laughs> what? <laughs> a mighty dog whistle, right?
0: <laughs> that that's what everybody says. We've got that one here. Here's here's another one.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love the T thirty eight. Still flying. Still flying, believe it or not, so Very, can't get those uh, cannot get those t sevens on the ramp soon enough,
0: yeah, well, that was uh, that I mean th- those were fun. I thought when I saw those pictures from you I said I had to bring those guys up <laughs> so um, so that's what got, what had you you know with the one hundred and twenty first fighter squadron uh, with the District of Columbia, and um we might as well hop you know right into it. there's a lot more to get to, but take us through. What actually happened? Because your story on nine eleven is is unbelievable, with so much happening at one moment.
1: You know, yes, and I just have to say, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, or the right place at the right time. But I, I will say that I truly believe that that what Mark Sasseville and I were willing to do that day was nothing special. Any one of us would have been willing to do the same thing, whether or not you are a military service member or first responder. I mean, if you just take a look at how Americans across the nation responded, Hmm. uh, whether or not you were in New York, whether or not you were at Shanksville, um, there at the Pentagon, um, or even just in in small town America, the way that people came together to take care of each other. uh, I just, there's nothing unique. About me personally, other than I was standing at the ops desk when we got the call. Uh, but I wasn't really supposed to fly that day. It really wasn't. I was not on the flying schedule. Uh, it was a skeleton crew because we had just gotten back from Red Flag. And what a lot of people don't understand is that when we do our practice missions, I mean, we do what we call CT training, continuity training. Um, so it's, it's how we maintain our tactical edge, but we don't, when we go out and we fly intercepts or we dogfight or we go to the range to practice, uh, laser guided bombs. These are not real weapons. We do not fly around with real weapons on board. Uh, we do carry bullets, but those bullets are not high explosive incendiary rounds. They are lead nose bullets. Um, so they're really not going to have, they're like really fast, big BB guns, right? they're not gonna have any kind of big effect. So a lot of people are, were like, wait a second, why weren't, you, why weren't you armed? Because that's not how we operate on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was sitting in a scheduling meeting with a handful of, of other folks. The vast majority of our guard unit um, was either taking leave because we'd just gotten back from Red Flag or as part-timers because they had been, ta- they'd taken two weeks off of work to be at Red Flag were back to their normal jobs offline for the airlines and so forth. Literally, our pilots were scattered across the nation because most of our pilots were also airline pilots. Hmm. Uh, we had sent a three-ship of F-16s down to the Derrick County Ranges in North Carolina, Cape Hatteras, our fifty-three fourteen, if y'all are interested. Um, and that was, uh, that was Lou Shooter Campbell. Um, Eric Puck Hagenson was number two, and Billy Hutchison was number three. And we had sent them down there to go do basic surface attack, which I, is really, it's comfort food for fighter pilots. <laughs> we, yeah. we love it. You know, you literally you have on the ranges, you've got, you know, it's like a big bullseye. And um, we had little 33-pound um, phosphorus-charged bombs. So they go poof when they hit the ground. And you you, dr- you drive around in a rectangular pattern and you literally dive at the at the bullseye and release the weapon and come off. So that's what those guys were doing that was our morning that morning um, when we heard that an airplane had hit the world trade center and it was a crystal blue morning there was not a cloud in the sky it was a perfect flying day and we looked around at each other and we're like how does that happen because we're not that far away from new york we share a similar weather weather pattern typically so we thought well maybe they had mist, fog uh, maybe it was a Cessna that took a wrong turn. You know, they've got those little tour Cessnas going up and down. And so we made, to be honest, um, some some inappropriate jokes. We, as fighter pilots were known for having a kind of black humor, um, and we went back, and back to our business. And it wasn't until um, David Chunks Callahan, David, Dave was one of our enlisted troops, came back and said another aircraft hit the other World Trade Center. It was on purpose. And that's when we got up. And we went to the squadron bar and we saw what everyone else saw that morning. And we knew that our nation was under attack.
0: Wow. What was the The, command structure? What time at what point did the military and did your unit start to respond to that?
1: The problem, Jeff, was that that we didn't have any structure at the time. Now, this is totally different today. we are very well prepared today with units across the nation uh, having active alert. We, we, we fly random air patrols, and we, we do as much as we possibly can to imagine the what-ifs. But on that Tuesday morning in 2001, we were living in a post-Cold War era. The Soviet Union was gone. It was the, the Earth had flattened. It was the end of history. We're a unipolar world, and the Air Force had been cut in half, literally and all of the alert units that had used to they 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 sat on the borders of our nation they were gone there were only five alert units sitting alert that that morning portland oregon fresno california homestead at jacksonville uh, florida a detachment um from north Dakota at langley and then up in otis and that was it and their mission was when they got the scramble orders is if they would head out over the oceans, because that's where the threat came from. So there was nobody sitting over DC. It, we used to, as the DC Guard, we used to sit alert, but that mission had been taken away from us uh, years and years before. So as the DC Guard, we didn't belong to NORAD. We weren't an alert squadron. Um as the District of Columbia Air National Guard, we didn't have a governor because the mayor of governor, the the, the mayor of DC was not our commander in chief. Our civilian chain of control goes all the way up to the president. Just like in a normal state, their civilian chain of control goes to their governor and then they they get activated to be part of a federal response to go to war. Um, Our civilian chain of command went to the president and you can imagine he was pretty busy at that time. So we had no way to get the authorization to launch. And we couldn't do that on our own because we knew that it would involve lethal force. Um, We knew by that point in time that, because we had seen the videos that the target was, uh, it it would be a civilian airliner with innocent Americans and civilians on board. It would have significant impact to whatever happened on the ground with the debris field. legal response and also we didn't know what other response was going on because we were not getting any kind of communication so if we had taken off on our own not only did did we have all of those other problems but we could have made it worse mm-hmm. by inducing confusion and fog and friction so yes. now remember i'm just a brand new lieutenant right i mean i am telling you these things with the wisdom of of, of 2020 hindsight of having to of, of being able to look back and all that but I was a wide-eyed lieutenant, really green. I had just earned my combat mission qualification uh, a couple of months prior. Uh, so I am watching the, the, the leaders in my squadron. And again, we're, we're, we're a very small squadron. We've got um, our DO, our, uh, our uh, director of operations at the time, Mark Sasseville. He's a, 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 a three-star now, but at the time he was a major. Um, we had, uh, Dan, uh, Raisin Kane, a two-star now, but at the time he was also a major. He was our weapons officer. We just brought on, uh, Mark Drifter Valentine, um, who again was a major. So we were all very young because we were a part-time guard unit. Mm-hmm. So they, they were, they were doing what they could to respond. And so our wing commander, general, uh, Brigadier General, uh, Dave Worley, who was our wing commander he had come down to the ops building he's going to try to get us that authorization to launch so he's working through the chain of command he's pushing that noodle up right trying to find someone who has the authority at the same time mark sassoville is calling over to the control tower there on andrews because at andrews is where air force one lives right mm-hmm. and every time air force one moves the secret service owns the field so the secret service controls who takes off who lands and so forth so SAS is thinking if he can get a hold of the control tower and they know one of the secret service guys' phone numbers, then maybe he can go around that chain of command to go directly to the president, get access to somebody within that civilian chain, and they can give us that authorization to launch. Um, what What's interesting is that what was going on, you know, beyond just that effort to get the, the that authorization, right? So you've got... Uh, You've got Dave Worley trying to get the authorization through the chain of command. You've got SAS trying to work around it. Uh, Dan Kane, Raisin Kane, our our weapons officer, he knows we've got to get missiles. We've got to get um, actual weapons on board. So he calls down to the bomb dump. And again, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, you don't just, um, you know, it's not like weapons come ziplocked and you open up the bag and you load it on up. It's a lot more like Legos right, the different parts and pieces, whether or not it's a bomb or a missile, you've got the missile uh, body, you've got the explosive, you've got the fuse, you've got the guidance kit, you've got the fins, you've got the rocket motor, all of those things have to be built up. So it takes time to be able to do that. Um, So Raisin is calling down to the bomb dump and telling them, I need you to build me up some real Aim 9s and I need you to get them to the flight line now. And you have to, you know, kind of put this in perspective this is the military this is the air force this is the military the world's largest bureaucracy we don't do anything without paper trail right (laughs) and here's raisin calling up the bomb dump and saying hey guys i need you to build me up some actual missiles by the way we're in good guy land we're home we're not in bad guy land and i need you to get them to the flight line and it is truly a testament to raisin's leadership and his credibility that based off that phone call Um, our weapons troops began immediately to build up those missiles. And the challenge was is Sass and I just wouldn't get them in time. Mm. Uh, Dave McNulty. Dave McNulty was our intelligence officer, and he is one of the smartest guys I know. I just love the heck out of him. Comes from a long line of Boston cops. And again, remember we're a guard unit. We're not getting, we're not getting fused intelligence feeds or anything like that. So what, what NUTS is doing, uh, Dave McNulty is called is NUTS. What he's doing is he is literally calling up the reservation desks of airlines, trying to figure out like who's airborne, what flights are scheduled, what flights have landed, and so forth. So he's doing what we today, so fancy, call um, open source intelligence because he's trying to build us uh, a, an air order of battle. He's trying to build us a picture of who's still airborne, because the FAA is already starting to bring folks down, right? Um, and uh, Mark Valentine, Drifter Valentine, that was his first day in the squadron. He had just gotten active du- off active duty. And again, one of the most brilliant guys that I know. Um, and so what he is, is doing is he's working with maintenance. He's trying to stage maintenance. He's trying to work all that sort of stuff um, so that we can you know, start getting the jets ready, um, start calling and bring, in, you know, whoever is not in the squadron, all the pilots that are in the squadron, he's got to start mobilizing folks and, and bringing them in and, and so forth. So so he's doing a lot of that back end work too. So again, I'm just a lieutenant. Like my job that day was to um build our takeoff and landing data cards, uh print some maps out and load up our data transfer cartridges. Like that's that's what I did. I did not contribute much. <laughs> but um Really impressive when you think about the initiative um, that these guys took, uh, and as much risk as they could, they were leaning forward as much as they possibly could. Now, Phil, Dog Thompson, uh, Dog is now uh, well. He was an airline pilot. He was one of our part-timers, uh, and I love Dog. Dog went to weapons school in the F4, and he had his big, still has a big, fluffy like Vietnam-style mustache. And Dog is just full of good common sense. He was a damn good fighter pilot. Dog was our supervisor of flying that day. And so he calls down to the Dare County Rangers where we had sent the bully flight. Remember, I had said we'd had a three ship of F-16s down there, Shooter Campbell, uh, Eric Haginson, Puck Haginson, and Billy Hutchison. And he tells them, okay, you guys got to come home. Um, so he tells the ranger, send him home, tell him to buster." Puck had actually bingoed himself out. Uh, not unusual for a lieutenant. I'd never done that, right? You know, afterburner can fix a lot of problems. <laughs> but uh, um, so Puck was actually already on his way home when Dog calls down and tells uh, the Dare County Ranger to send home the bullies. And for
0: those, those folks listening, bingoing out is fuel on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's your like, okay, I don't have any more playtime fuel. I gotta go home now, otherwise I'm gonna have to divert for fuel. Mm-hmm. Um so shooter and Billy are on their way home. Puck is is starting to get in the airspace, and he calls up Dog, who's sitting supervisor of flying, kind of the you know, adult supervision of the flying operation for the day. It's just a duty. Um, and so uh, Puck calls up and says, you know, guard soft, bully too. And Dog picks up the radio, goes, he's kind of annoyed because things are getting a little busy. He goes, all right, bully two guards off, go. And Washington Center is not going to let Eric Hagenson back into the airspace because they're shutting down all the airspace. So Dog says, don't you worry about that. I'll take care of everything. And, you know, calls up Potomac, no, no, they one of ours, bring them on back home. We got another two ship coming in, so forth. And then Puck calls back and he says, hey, they're asking me if I've got missiles or bombs on board, you know, kind of what's going on here. You got to remember at that point in time, we all lived in like two separate worlds, right? You lived in a pre-9-11 and you lived in a post-9-11 and everything had to do with whether or not you saw the images. Did you see the towers? If you saw the towers, you were living in a post-9-11 world if you hadn't you were still pre-9-11 um and the bullies are all pre-9-11 right they were down there at at, at the Dare county range they have no idea what's going on so anyhow dog says don't you would you just keep on coming home and it was a couple weeks later after puck lands and you know we all do our stuff he comes home he lands safely i listened to his tapes like a couple weeks later and it's coming in he's dialing up the ATIS, and this is what the andrews ATIS said this is andrews air force base information bravo andrews air force base is closed washington class bravo airspace is closed any aircraft attempting to enter washington class bravo airspace will be shot down that was it um it was shortly thereafter that we got the call uh, to take off because the Pentagon had been hit. And Vice President Cheney says, aren't there fighters at Andrews? Somebody get them airborne. So the Secret Service calls us. I'm standing there at the ops counter. General release there. SAS is there. Dog's behind the counter um pucks coming in he's already he's he's already landed raisins there um Brandon Rasmussen who was an active duty Captain um he was also uh, he was embedded in our unit so he's sitting there too and when that's when we get the call and SAS says Lucky you're with me Raisin you and I go or wait until you get missiles Lucky let's go now I would love to say that SAS picked me because I was a Sierra Hotel wingman but really i think and i've never asked him this but really i believe that what was going through sas's mind is that first of all he we knew at that point in time that if we got the authorization to launch before those missiles got loaded up it was going to be a suicide mission um we had the four of us had sat down in a briefing room and had kind of gone through what uh what our options were kind of weaponered it on the fly based off of what we knew would be required to take down an airliner-sized uh, target. And even though we f- were flying around with 105 rounds of those training bullets, remember those those BB guns um, in our noses, between the two of us, even 210 rounds was not going to be sufficient to bring down um, the airliner, the flight. And uh, so SAS knew it was going to be one-way mission if we were successful and you know brandon's got a wife and a baby and um dan's got a a a wife as well so they have families i am single i've got a dog someone can feed my dog i think i truly believe that's why sas picked me um and because we believed at that point in time based off of what um NUTS was able to kind of put together that there were maybe up to three airliners still unaccounted for. And Dog had just gotten a call from Washington from Potomac, uh, TRACON saying that they think another one's coming down the river. So I run after SAS, we go down to life support putting on my, you know, my gear, and I, <laughs> I'm thinking. Don't forget anything, because you can't come back. <laughs> you know, and that's when you know I'm, I'm I'm got my DTC, my lineup card, you know, my helmet, my my checklist. I'm, everything's in everything's my helmet bag. I'm you know zipping up my G suit when SASS looks at me and says, "I'll ram my jet into the cockpit," and I knew that I would ram my jet into the tail, the empennage, and that's how we were going to divide it up. Now about this time. The bullies are coming back. So you've got the two ship. You've got you've got Shooter Campbell. You've got Billy Hutchinson. They're coming back. They're coming back into land. um And so Dog asks him like, "How much fuel do you have?" And Shooter didn't have enough. And I don't. I I don't. I'm not sure exactly how much fuel Billy had. It was probably like a thousand pounds, eight hundred pounds maybe. It was totally min fuel because they had been coming back in uh, mill power, and but but dog says, okay, Billy, you got just enough fuel. You got just enough fuel to do one pass up and down the river. They think another one's coming low over the Potomac. And so I actually hear that little piece, um, in my radio, you know, as assassin and I run out to the jets, right. And <laughs> I'll tell you this part, cause this part's pretty funny. Remember I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lieutenant. I'm a dumb lieutenant, brand new, super green. Uh, sass uh he he had done his nuke cert so he'd done like the actual like nuke alert thing um so he runs up to his jet and he just like jumps right in and i'm thinking okay we all know as pilots that when you deviate from your habit patterns when you start disregarding your checklist that's like when things that's the start of the accident chain right so this is if anything in my life mattered it was now i could not get this wrong so I'm going to follow my habit patterns and totally do my checklists. So it's going to be the best pre-flight I've ever done. It's just going to be the fastest one I've ever done. So I run up and I grab the 781 forms for the crew chief and I'm looking through the forms. And Tess is already up in the cockpit. And he goes, Lucky, what the hell are you doing? Get in the goddamn jet. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like, that's when it occurred to me, like, we don't have time for checklists. I got to throw the book out. I got to rely on my own systems knowledge to improvise something that I had never been trained for. I have to make up my own procedures for scrambling. Right. Yeah. So I just, I, I climb up the jet, I climb up the ladder and I tumble into the the cockpit. And at this point, like I'm not even strapped myself in and my crew chief, normally the crew chiefs, they follow you up the ladder and they tuck you in and they, you know, they snap your harness into the, it's, 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 you're getting tucked in. it's It's wonderful. Um, no, like I tumbled into the cockpit and poof, that ladder is gone, right? And so I'm doing the minimum to get this thing started. Nine eleven We do not have GPS on the jets. We had recently been upgraded to ring laser gyros for our international navigation systems. Yep. So it only took eight minutes. To spin up that system, we don't have eight minutes. We don't have time to do the whole starting sequence. So I'm going to do the minimum necessary to make sure that I have a safe flying aircraft. JFAS start two, 20% go on idle, watching the RPM and the temperature, 40% less than 750. Let that stabilize out. I do my sec check, my EPA check. I do my flickest bit to 43. So I know my digital flight control system has done its minimum necessary. And at that point in time, like SAS is taxiing and I'm getting ready to jump the chocks in afterburner. And suddenly, you know, they pull the chocks. And as I'm taxiing after SAS, I look down and and my crew chief, he's actually still plugged into the jet. And other guys are pulling pins. They're pulling the pins out of my gear and out of my tours. out of my external fuel tanks and the last thing my crew chief says to me is um is godspeed wow and i taxi after SAS, we take off on a runway one right and we fly low headed northwest through the smoke over the pentagon and we never found anything now remember i had said I had said that the bullies had come back and, and I could hear Billy and, and Dog on my tapes. And Sass, is not, Sass and I are taxiing. Dog's asking, you know, Shooter and Billy, how much fuel you got? Shooter doesn't have enough. Um, Billy has, like I said, probably min fuel, 800,000 pounds. He's got just enough to do one pass up and down. So Billy takes off first. Billy takes off first and he he goes up down the Pentagon or down the Potomac or up the Potomac, probably Great Falls, comes back down, kind of circles around, and then then he lands. and but Sass and I, we take off right after him. We're seconds after him. and um, and sass takes us, I don't know, I don't even know how many miles into the Pennsylvania countryside, but we never saw anything. You know, we're spread wide, searching low with our It's just burning worms. But we did not find flight 93 the passengers had already crashed the jet and they were the real heroes that morning and thank god they did thank god they did
0: what was happening with flight control at the time for you coordinating and trying to both find 93 as well as uh, as you mentioned in that kind of fog of war situation there were a lot of people thinking that there were other aircraft also out there.
1: So I'm glad you brought that up, Jeff, because I will tell you, the air traffic controllers are freaking amazing. They are real unsung heroes here. Because if you think about it, you take air traffic controllers, and their job is to keep all of us on our airways and in our stars and our SIDS and, you know, um, keep us separated. And suddenly, now their job is to bring us together and their professionalism and mental agility and their ability to do that is was mind-watering to me it just blew blew my mind um so when we took off we were talking with potomac because there was no air force AWACS, dark star none of that we didn't have
0: you're on civilian have that kind
1: of yeah we're, we're talking to civilians exactly so the only, the only battle space awareness support that we have is Potomac approach. Wow. You, we're to Potomac Tracon. So SAS takes us out, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe a hundred miles. It's and sufficient to sanitize that airspace on the axis that we went to make sure no one was coming down in that, that area. And once we've sanitized that airspace, he goes, okay, we got a ranch house. We got to go back to um what we had called bullseye which was the the dca vortex because if we kept and continued just heading out to the northwest what if we had picked the wrong axis and we got flanked by the bad guy Mm -hmm. so he he brought us out just enough to sanitize and then then took us back to 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 dc where he had us set up a counter-rotating cap so He'd be looking to the northwest and I'd be flying to the southeast, and then we'd turn around, right? And while we're doing that, SASA's talking to Potomac and saying, okay, um, we're going to need your help in uh, identifying uh, radar contacts and potential um, unknown aircraft. And so this is how we need you to help us. DCA VORTAC, let's call that bullseye. If something is on the on the 090 radial, so to the east of of Reagan, um for 15 miles into 3,000 feet. And what you to say, you know, bullseye 090, uh, uh, 15, 15 for 3,000, right? Yeah. So that would allow us to be able to point in that direction, you know, set our radars, find that contact, and then go investigate it. And that's what they did. Um, immediately like something off to the North, uh, you know, uh, cap one, two, you've got, uh, unknown contact, uh, bullseye three, six, zero for 15, 3000 feet. We're going to head out North and go see that. And remember again, a lot of people were living in a pre nine 11 world. So a lot, it was a gorgeous flying day. A lot of people, a lot of guys just went, this is awesome. I'm going to watch the 6am news, have my cup of coffee, go to the airport. Hang around, eat a donut, and then go for a spin.
0: Yeah,
1: and that was totally normal. Totally. I mean, twenty okay.
0: twenty years ago, people didn't didn't have the same things with with even even news on their cell phone while they're driving or anything like that going on.
1: Cell phones. We didn't have cell phones. <laughs> yeah, right. there was there was not we were not bombarded by this twenty four seven media. So mm-hmm. we have to remember and put ourselves back into that mindset. So, Potomac were they were phenomenal and before long they were adding um IFF squawks so so whatever whatever your transponder code was and then they were telling us who that was and what their point of origin was and what their destination was so they'd say you know um uh we've got a medevac flight uh, bullseye 020 for 7 2000 feet uh point of origin is um you know uh, some hospital and they're going to the pentagon you know, so by adding that additional identification and information, they were able to help us sift through really who are the good guys and who do we need to go investigate. Wow! So I just, I cannot say enough wonderful things about uh, Potomac. Uh, They were just, they were phenomenal. And by the way, those guys run the Cifra now. I fly little airplanes on Cifra. I still love those guys. They are the best. I love them. They're fabulous.
0: That is, you know, I, I, I'm so uh, appreciative that you explain that because I don't think many people think of that aspect of what ATC did on 9-11. And and oh obviously, goodness. they were some of the first to really understand there was an issue to start to spread the word internally of what was going on. But I didn't realize the extent at which they became the combat center for coordination for folks like
1: yourself. Yeah, you no, know, they they really were. They were incredibly important for that for that initial response. And then as we continued our 24/7 combat um, air patrols over D.C., where we had layered fighters, and we did at that point then have tankers and AWACS um, and so forth they were still a crucial piece of every element of responding because they tied together the civilian battle space picture um, and shared that then with the Air Force and and our E3 AWACS at that point in time. So And supporting uh, what NIAS was doing, the Northeast Air Defense Sector, uh, they just phenomenal, just phenomenal. Um, I can't tell you how much I respect and appreciate traffic controllers. So
0: moving ahead a little bit, what was the transition like as you, as time went by and you transitioned into a, a combat role, having had this experience and then moving as uh, as things proceeded with the war in Iraq? Um, tell me a little bit about that that transition, what your experience was.
1: We continued to fly 24/7 combat air patrols for through June of 2002, um, and it took time to begin to um, normalize scheduling, normalize procedures, the rules of engagement, to hand over um, the authorities to the Air Force. Because interestingly, the DC Guard were we were the CAP commanders. We had the commit authorities. For the first couple of weeks, and so um, it took us time to then transition all of that. And of course, everyone was like, "Why did it happen? What happened?" So there was just a lot of confusion to work through for those first couple of weeks. And frankly, after about a month or so, um, things began to normalize out. It was really amazing uh, coming back in. I mean, so Sass and I, you know, we we did our our we were airborne. I think think like for four hours it was a while um oh. because raisin and and igor brandon rasmussen um when they got missiles they got airborne uh SAS set up a, an x leg cap um and then we waited until there was another set of f-16s and i forget who that was um to replace SAS and me and i didn't then realize we that an
0: f-16 doing that type of mission you'd be able to stay airborne for four hours uh did you refuel? uh,
1: actually yeah no you're right so normally even with the two bags of gas that we had because we were still configured for red flag we were in an air to ground configuration still um that's normally only about two and a half hours so while sass and i um when we came back we'd been in the cap for a little bit after he'd set it up and that's when um uh the langley guys the quits showed up because they had gone out over the atlantic and um, we're finally able to get back into the airspace. So they were up at 18,000 feet. Um, and they were working with NEADS. They brought an AWACS, they brought their tanker. And so um, SAS and I are doing our thing down low. And Potomac says, uh, hey, uh, Cap 1 1, we've got, uh, we've got uh, a, a phone call from NEADS. They're trying to, uh, to reach you. There's a, a quit on this frequency. So SASS and I stayed plugged in um, on our on our intraflight flight frequency, and he stayed connected to Potomac, and he sent me up over to talk to the Quits, the oh. F16s. Um, I, I, I think they're Fargo guys um, that were a detachment down, down down at Langley, and so then through that connection and communication was how we began. How SASS then began to say, okay, you guys stay up high you've got the high look, I want you, um, you know, running east and west. And they were the ones that brought the tanker. Um, and then later on, they were able to uh, to bring in an AWACS. But for that point in time, um, and that's that's how we ran it. So Sass and I were able to go get fuel off the, off of the tanker that the, the quits had brought with them. Wow. And that's how wow. we stayed. That's how we stayed airborne for that period of time. And so then Sass and I went down and landed. Um, you know, we, we, SAS debriefed some of the Air National Guard leadership. And then we um went back up and flew a second flight um that day. And that's when we brought uh Air Force One back in too. Wow. That's amazing. I say, I say we again, remember I'm a wingman, so I'm ski roping this whole thing. You're doing a little
0: more than that, but uh yeah, uh, when you when you when you make that type of commitment to a mission. Um so you did two tours uh, over in uh, Iraq.
1: On the Scuds, it was so much fun.
0: Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, one of the things that was really unique about our first deployment to Iraq was that we, um, the Air National Guard uh, Block 30 F-16s were selected specifically for the Scud hunting mission because of the unique equipment that we had on. Because of the way the Guard... Was able to um, independently modernize that airframe. As older aircraft, um, they were no longer supported by, um, no longer primarily supported by the active duty Air Force, and so the Guard could kind of do a little bit of their own stuff with that. So they had integrated a Saddle data link where we could do things like free text with the Army. Saddle was actually an Army um, data link. Uh, we had a lightning targeting pod, so laser targeting pod uh, that was was actually ahead technologically ahead of the lantern pod, which is what the um, active duty Air Force used, and so had much better, much better. the lantern pod was like looking at a 1970 sonogram? I mean, it was, but the lightning pod not only the 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 resolution was phenomenal in the um, the infrared, uh, whether or not it was black hot or white hot. And it gave you a lot more control but it also had a laser marker and it also had what we called eo electro optical so it's kind of like black and white tv um, mm-hmm. at the time and it, it, they've clearly become far much more advanced and so you have both lightning and the sniper pod um, today but so we had some really unique capabilities uh, on the aircraft uh, that made us um uh especially uh equipped to be able to hunt scuds and and work with the special operations uh, forces that were uh, also sharing that mission to hunt scuds in the Western deserts. Mm -hmm. And so um, Raisin and Drifter and um, the weapons officers from our sister units that we deployed with, uh, the Montgomery Guard and the Buckley Guard, so Alabama and Colorado, um, they worked together to develop the tactics that would enable us to be um, incredibly effective. And very quick at, at that job because we knew that they were going to use uh, uh, shoot and scoot tactics, so it was a very limited time window we had to hunt them um, and we're happy to say that uh, that no scuds got launched
0: that's that's Sorry. impressive and then the fact that you got that opportunity to go and, and essentially you know hunt these offensive weapons and uh, and do it effectively
1: yeah yeah and I, you know I was very fortunate I was airborne with um with kirk pierce i was his wingman uh for the first part of uh we did combat pairs so you flew with the same 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 pair same two ship um every night for the for the first couple uh first couple weeks and so i was uh tick pierce's uh combat wingman um fantastic fighter pilot by the way nothing but awesome things to say about him um and we were airborne for. The opening phases of combat operations, and so we were in the western western part of Iraq, uh, hunting hunting those scuds. And of course, most everyone was going into into Baghdad, and it was it was something to see.
0: Wow, do you remember the the first time that you fired a, a weapon in combat?
1: Yes, <laughs> it was actually the first time I had dropped um uh, any live weapon. I had not done any live any live weapons it was a 500 pound um laser guided bomb and i remember being distinctly disappointed at uh it did not look like hollywood at all i'm just saying
0: <laughs> oh that's what you were disappointed about was what the result yes
1: it was not make. a big boom
0: <laughs> well at, at least you're on target <laughs> wow um, all right. So that, that what brought you back then, out of the military into the states, and 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 kind of got you towards your civilian the civilian side of your uh, of your career. I know you flew at Reno. I want to, uh, and we're running out of time to hear about that. So you may end up having to come back, but I want to hear some.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, like like everyone. I mean, the the mission the mission ended. It was time for us to come home. We all came home, and and that's when when we everybody in the in the air force and the air national guard i mean we all began that high that high rotational tempo mm-hmm. um that uh that really had just not only burned out a lot of our people but burned out a lot of our aircraft i mean remember yeah. like i said you know, the air force got cut in half um in the 1990s and actually got even smaller um after uh after we entered Afghanistan and Iraq, so we, we got even smaller after that. Which just meant that everyone had to fly harder and more often. So, okay. so that that higher ops tempo just just burned everybody, just burned everyone out. Um, but you know, I I came back. Um, I got married. I had two little girls, and then and after my my second deployment, uh, it my first marriage was was not. I was a single mom of two little girls hmm. and I could not handle um, the deployments anymore. I couldn't yeah. handle the ops tempo. I couldn't remain a credible fighter pilot with the demands of being a single mom. By then I was a part-timer. So I was working for um, for Lockheed Martin and I was burning the candle at, at every edge and something was going to give. And and I had to make a choice. And it was one of the hardest days of my life to walk into my commander and say, boss, I can't do this anymore. Uh, Because not a day goes by that I don't miss the jet, not a day goes by that I don't miss the mission, and not a day goes by that I don't miss the bros. I am incredibly fortunate to have been able to serve with just some of the the finest people I have ever known um, and to do it for a nation that I love in a jet that i love and let's just be honest it was awesome (laughs) but i was fortunate that when i did have to call it quits the commander on the other side of base um uh woody akins gary akins uh he was an a-10 pilot he actually was a desert storm vet he flew the a-10 in desert storm amazing amazing fighter pilot And he had, and he was, he had, we'd flown F-16 together. He had actually been over in OIF for the opening phases with us as well. And when he, he had gone over to the other side, to our sister squadron, the tour first airlift squadron, which does uh, VIP Sam. So uh, VIP special airlift missions. So basically kind of like White House light, right? Um, Net jets for generals. Um, So he heard I was, I had called it quits with the F-16 and he called me up, goes lucky, come fly for me. I said, Woody, you got to know, I got, I got these two little girls. I, I, I've got a, I, I can't do these two-week international trips that you do with the C40 and taking Codels everywhere, congressional delegations, internationally. He goes, no, no, no. I got, I got these little Astrojets, and, and you'll be fine. And do you know what an Astrojet is? It's so much fun. It's so much fun. What a great, what a great thrusty little airplane. It's got a duck billed face that only its mama could love, but it was a blast to fly. <laughs> so i i was fortunate to get to to move from the fighter world over to over to the corporate world for the uh for the military um and get to get to learn that kind of aviation and i'll tell you what you know um it, again consummate professionals um in the in that in the corporate world i say corporate it was military you know military it was yeah. still military military corporate transport <laughs> Yes, but I'll tell you what. I mean, these guys came from C-130s. They came from C- uh, um, KC-135s. They came from KC-10s, um, and or, or even from like the little Learjets. But they were so dedicated to excellence in their kind of flying, and they really it was it was a new world for me. Um, I swear to God, I thought that the the flight management system was going to kill me. It was like the it was harder to deal with than you know, than, than the weapon systems that I had over in the F-16, but, um, that, but it was a, a kind of line that I, that I just really learned to love. Um, and I'm so fortunate to have been able to experience, uh, both sides of that to the, you know, and I'm fortunate again today to be able to, to continue to, um, to be a contract pilot on Citation XLS now. I'm out of the military, and retired, but, uh, I get to still dip my hand into it a little every once in a while.
0: Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? And, and, you know, one of the things I want to, uh, uh, as we approach the top of the hour, make sure that, that we point out is a lot of people, I don't think, give enough credit to the Air National Guard across the United States. And this, this where you serve, the amount of actual combat that, that the Air National Guard has in its history, and the fact that it was frontline defense during 9-11 uh, is, is so important. And even as you mentioned, that they had the freedom to even be technically advanced in some other ways. Um, yes.
1: And, and I'll yeah. tell you, you know, um, thank you, Jeff, for bringing that up, because as as everyone probably knows, the Air Force is suffering a massive pilot shortage right now. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't have enough aircraft. We're not. So, so ironically, on one hand, we're not flying and training our, our pilots enough, but then we're also asking them and tasking them at a very high ops tempo. So we're burning them out at the same time. It's a really strange dynamic. Mm-hmm. And so so guys are leaving because because they're just, they're, they're not able to do what they joined to do. Right. And their families are fed up. And so the Air National Guard catches them. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the I, Air you National
0: know, Part-time warriors that make up the Air National Guard. And, and it, it, there's so much more than that concept
1: yeah and so the 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 wealth of experienced combat aviators actually is in the air national guard today
0: wow that's an that's very very interesting well heather what i'd like i would love to uh uh, have you back on the show because I, i want to talk about that i want to talk about a little bit more about some of your experience including at reno but especially about the work that you're doing today um, as a senior resident fellow at the Mitchell Institute and and talking about what we need to be thinking about for our, the future of our nation's military and protecting the United States.
1: I would love to do that, Jeff. I mean, one of the reasons why I, I love what I do at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies um, is because as a defense expert, focusing on air force and air power issues, dealing with national security, thinking about future warfare, thinking about the technology, great power competition. It's my way of continuing to serve and to make sure that the young men and women, if we ask them, that they are not sent on a suicide mission like I was on. I was sent on a suicide mission because we were not equipped, we had lost our imagination, and we had lost our readiness. As as a nation, we had become complacent. And I feel like it's my moral obligation to make sure that the young men and women who are in service today uh, are not put in the same situation.
0: Yeah. And I I think a lot of that starts with the education of spreading the word as you you spread the word on Capitol Hill and to the Department of Defense and others through all of your studies. I, I would love to have you back and help spread the word of awareness to the constituents of those people and people who, who, who vote and the average you know, American and pilot who can understand where we really stand as a country and uh, how much work needs to be done to face the potential threats of the future, which I think are, are more important now than they've ever been.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Um, so for the listeners, you can find our website, um, uh, just Google the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. We also have, um, we're on YouTube, Aerospace Nation, You can get on our email list. We also have a podcast, The Aerospace Advantage, hosted by John Slickbaum, uh, also another fighter pilot, but uh, he was also a Thunderbird. So great dude. You got to meet him.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Heather, thank you so, so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. And I cannot wait to get you both for one more time (laughs) to come back and talk about all these things. Uh, I'm grateful for your service. Sincerely. and and your stories and your insight uh, on everything that you've been through and sharing all of that
1: with us. Oh, you bet, Jeff. So, so how do you know if a fighter pilot comes to your party? (laughs) Don't (laughs) worry, they'll let you know. I'd love to come (laughs) back and talk more about myself.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much, Heather.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.
0: Have a wonderful evening. Good night. Good night. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We will be gone for the next two weeks. We're doing travel and at Sun and Fun. We'll be putting plenty of things out on our YouTube channel, so be sure to check out YouTube. Just do a search on one word, Social Flight, on YouTube. Check out our channel. You'll see all the different interviews and things that we are doing during this time. And please come back two weeks from tonight on Tuesday, April 4th at 8 p.m. And you'll be joined here with EAA President Jack Pelton talking to us about the state of general aviation and of course about AirVenture 2023. And as we mentioned, we will also be having Heather Penny back here on the show. What what an amazing show. I, I am just very, very grateful for that. Thank you all again, and I wish you all blue skies.